This is a presentation of Redemption Bible Church. For more information, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org. We will start a new series in the book of Thessalonians written by Paul to the church, to the church in Thessalonica. And our series uh, title for this eight-week series is Abound. Abound in love and holiness and hope. And I'm excited for this series, not only because this is God's word and we're called to preach and teach and live out as followers of Jesus, but this letter is an encouragement of perseverance and comfort. And uh, this letter makes my top 12 favorite Pauline epistles because we know, yes, this is a Bible joke, there's 12 of them in the Bible. But why this series excites me personally is because it gives me comfort through hope. And not just for me, but for our church. This letter is an encouragement to the church in Thessalonica because the church here, they were actually living out their faith. Of course, not perfectly, but growingly, abundantly, transformationally. Their faith and hope in Christ, it wasn't stagnant or stale. They lived out their faith. They lived out their hope. They lived out their holiness. And I believe one way that Christianity today, especially in the West, can be primarily characterized is by comparing it to the fast food in the West. Disclaimer, no judgment or hate on my end about fast food. Specifically, if you're here this morning and eating a McGriddle, I'm not shaming you. In fact, I'll probably come up to you with a two-for-three deal. Where's the second one? I will gladly take that one. I'm not talking about the consumption. I want to focus on the perception of fast food. This is the thing about uh, fast food. The, uh, the visibility of the actual food, the perceptibility of the item is deceiving in terms of when it was made or cooked, right? I'm, I'm sure you've read this before. A woman shares a photo of a McDonald's cheeseburger and fries that hasn't rotted in 10 years. She's not loving it. Or maybe you've heard this one. This McDonald's burger bought in 1995 has still not decomposed. McForever? I should have put that on flags. But fast food lasts for a very long time. It takes a very long time for it to visibly change its appearance unlike organic, fresh products. It's already browning in the store before we can even buy them. You buy a McDouble today, again, no hate on McDoubles. I will gladly take one. You buy a McDouble today, and tomorrow it'll look exactly the same. The next week it'll look the same. And according to some people, this burger will still visually look similar 5, 10, 15 years from the day it was purchased. I'm not sure why they're keeping it for that long, but somehow they have kept it in that temperature. The perceptibility of it seems fine, but the content of it, it's, it's dried, it's tasteless. It's stale. And some of our churches and, and some of us, our faith has become stale and stagnant like a 15-year-old burger. Looks visually put together but probably tastes like literal garbage. Being a stale Christian is a concerning position to be because stagnant Christianity is dangerous Christianity. But the people in Thessalonica, they were not living a stale Faith. The, the church here, they were living out their faith even through affliction for the sake of the gospel. 
But this letter is not just a report card or a thank you card. Paul still asks them of something. He says, good job, but I want you to do this. And I think this is the key to fight a stagnant faith, a stale faith. I think this is the key to persevere through affliction and grow to be like Jesus more and more and more. And it's this, abound. Abound, meaning exist in abundance, overflow, flourish, thrive, be alive with, abound. Abound in what? I think this is the, the, one of the key, the, the key passage of the text. No need to turn there, but it's three, chapter 3, verses 12. It says, may the Lord make you. That's important. Make the Lord, may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. May the Lord increase you and abound in love, in holiness, and hope. Don't be comfortable, church. Keep pursuing a deeper love for one another. Keep increasing in hope of Jesus and his return. Keep establishing your hearts blameless in holiness. Here's another question. How can a stale faith abound in anything? A dehydrated body cannot just rehydrate itself. It needs an outside source. It needs an IV. How can any one of us here increase and abound in love, holiness, and hope within ourselves? We don't. God does. Let the Lord make you increase and abound. But this is the business of God. This is God's work in our life. This is God's work in my life. This is God's work in your life. And it can only be done by and through God. And that's how Paul ends the letter. Don't worry. The Lord is faithful. He will do it. As regardless of how long you've been walking with Jesus, my prayer for our church is that we would allow the Lord to do his work in our lives, that we may abound in love for one another. That we would abound in hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father and abound in our King, Lord Jesus. Amen? Cool. Let's look at the, uh, the context here. All right, let's look at the context here. This letter was written by Paul after he wrote the letter to Galatia. This is his second letter, a very early letter in Paul's ministry. And so let's, uh, if you have your Bible open, open uh, your Bible to Acts 17. We're not even in the text, so we're going to get there pretty soon, though. Acts 17. Open up to Acts 17. All right. This is how we got here. This is where the founding of the church is recorded, right here in Acts 17, the first nine verses. It was Paul and his co-worker Silas who paired up with Paul after Paul and Barnabas departed and then also partnered up with Timothy, who Paul saw as a son. And this is during his second missionary journey after his visit to Philippi where he was jailed. He gets out of jail and just continues his mission work like nothing happens. And when Paul and Silas reached Thessalonica, Paul did what he was accustomed to do. He went straight to the synagogues and started preaching this in Acts 17, Acts 17, verses 3. This is what Paul was preaching. 
the, the, the latter end of that verse. This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. That's what he said when he went to these synagogues, went to the synagogue in Thessalonica. This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. It was through this message that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is Christ, that, that some people experience the power of the gospel for the first time, and they received the gospel. They received faith, and he did this for three Sabbaths. And Paul didn't just run into Thessalonica. It was an important city. And so that's why he decided to stop there. One commentary compares it to New York City in terms of its geographical location. And the city also was considered a free city in the Roman Empire, meaning it had a special privilege of controlling their own identity or political affairs, making it unlike any other city in Roman Empire where the military set up the government. They were able to experience being a free city to govern themselves as long as this one thing remained. You can do whatever you want, but you got to do this one thing, homage to the Roman Emperor Caesar. As long as they saw Caesar as divine, as king, they would have no trouble getting along with the Roman Empire. And then we see in Acts 17, the people here, they viewed Caesar as Lord and Paul preaches the gospel. No, 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 Jesus is Lord. And so there's a disruption, meaning we have an issue, the privilege of being a free city that had financial, ethical, personal incentive that was at stake. Their rights, their freedom was threatened. It was at stake. And so what happened? Verses 5 through 8, this is what happened to the church in Thessalonica. But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men out of the rabble and formed a mob, set the city in uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. That's what we believe where Paul and Silas was staying at, at the house of Jason. Seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Verse 6, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they all are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. There's drama happening here. The city authorities were disturbed. Things were getting tense. People were getting threatened. Things were getting dangerous. And so this new church plant, who received the gospel through Paul's message, is now sending away Paul and Silas, as text says, by night. They had escaped because they turned the world upside down with the news that Caesar is not Lord and Jesus is Lord. Even though Paul left, though, the persecution did not leave. Paul was concerned that this church would fall back into pagan worship after their conversion. And he was afraid that the church would completely backslide due to their newness of faith, due to the immense pressure of the Roman authority, which led to their affliction. However, one of the reasons why they were able to persevere and find comfort in their hope 
because they, rem- they remain grounded in something. They were able to live out the present actively and not be troubled by the past or what might happen in the future. They remain grounded in the gospel. And that's our title for our sermon today, Remain Grounded in the Gospel. And we look at the first chapter of Thessalonians, and uh, Paul opens it up as a thanksgiving report as he reinforces and reminds them of the grounding, sustaining power of the gospel, regardless of the circumstances. But Paul gets specific in his gratitude and highlights this. This is the, the big idea. The gospel empowers us to live out active and transformative faith. The gospel allows us to live out active and transformative faith. And we'll go through these uh, verses and look at Paul's gratitude towards the church. But one thing that I want to clarify is this. Our goal is not to replicate this church, but it's to be grounded in the identity of the good news of Jesus. But this church and any, any church all qualify the prerequisite of needing Jesus as Savior. And so my aim is not to put these people on a pedestal, it's to, but to fix our eyes on the king who came to bring good news. The servant that came to die for his people, Jesus, Lord of all. And that's what I want us to be grounded upon. And so I want us to look at ways we as a people, as a church, can be grounded in the good news of the gospel. Three ways to remain grounded in the, in the gospel. The first one is this. Deny yourself continuously. Deny yourself continuously. Let's look at verses 1 through 3. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of Thessalonians in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Right, Paul writes to them in gratefulness of how they welcomed Paul and how they received and responded to the gospel. And his opening part of the letter kind of gets away from his typical greeting and thanksgiving. Uh, he goes into the history of the relationship and encouragement, some narrative and exhortation, and all of a sudden we're in chapter 4, halfway through the letter. But he's thankful. He's thankful for the work of their faith. And following Jesus requires active faith, which entails toil and labor rooted in hope. And he says three things, right? He says three things in the end of verse 3. We remember your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadiness of hope. That's what the church was doing. They were working. Right, salvation is a free gift of God, but we know following Jesus costs us our life. There's no way for us to work in faith, labor in love, and have steadfast in hope without denying ourselves continuously. We work out our faith through self-denial. And I'm not talking about avoiding the good gifts that God has given us. Right, Ecclesiastes says, I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and to drink and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil. Toil is part of the process. 
Joy is the fruit of the spirit that we get to experience, but it comes from working out our faith in everyday application. And Paul isn't just remembering their work of faith, but also remembering their labor and love. Or what does it look like to labor and love? We grow in our labor and love through self-denial. And we might have heard this phrase before, forgiven people forgive. There's another one, loved people love others. When we stop and meditate on the love of the Father for his children, man, we'll have a desire to respond out of that love, even if it means to put in the work to love others. Right? God loves us, and he gave up his son for us so that we believe. And God doesn't just love us generically. He loves us personally. He knows us and selflessly. That's the love that we're called to love upon others. God's love for us leads us to love others like God. And if there's someone in your life that's really difficult to love, press forward, abound, deny yourself for the sake of putting them first like Jesus. And Paul remembers how the church remained steady in hope. They remained steady. And one commentary adds, Christian hope is not stargazing. I'm glad I'm reading that verse this week. There's a new picture of the stars and galaxy, or whatever it is, all that is. <laughs> Christian hope is not lazy. Martin Luther echoes a Pauline conviction when he writes that everything is done in the world Everything that is done in the world is done by hope. But the hope is seen in the doing of life. Remain grounded in the gospel by working out your faith in love and hope. Go to him in weakness and he will work. Working out physically costs you something. It costs time, focus, to be uncomfortable, to be dependent on whoever is uh, spotting you. It causes you to be pushed so that you're growing. Being a Christian also costs you something in a similar way. J.C. Ryle, an Anglican bishop, says this, It costs something to be a true Christian. Let that never be forgotten. To be a mere nominal Christian and go to church is cheap and easy work. But to hear Christ's voice, to follow Christ, to believe in Christ, and confess Christ requires much self-denial. It will cost us our sins, our self-righteousness, our ease, and our worldliness. All must be given up. And so how do we do this? This seems really hard. What does it look like to deny ourselves continuously? And I want to give us three quick steps that we can take. To do that. The first one is this pursue obedience in areas of disobedience. We don't like to hear this naturally. We know, but we need to be reminded of it. You go to a trainer in the gym, they aren't just working out your strongest muscle, they'll work out your weak ones first. They'll be working out all of my muscles if I go to a trainer. What areas in your life are you living in disobedience according to the word of God? Because if you pursue obedience in areas of disobedience, man, 
That's how you work out your faith. And God will honor that. And God will be honored in that step. Here's the second one. Realign the center of your worship. Realign the center of your worship. Our faith is centered around something and someone. We're worshiping someone or something all the time. But our faith ought to be centered around the work of Jesus. It's easy at times to come to worship and participate, participate in the, in the motions and with our words. But to worship him throughout the day outside of Sunday requires work. That's how you work out your faith. Prioritizing the word, being prayerful and intentional with your relationship with Jesus, allowing yourself to let the gospel define your day, which leads us to worship God. Who, who or what is the center of your worship right now? And the third one, serve with humility. Serve with humility. Man, I've seen our church do this. If it's coming on a Friday to clean the carpet downstairs and pick up the garbage, if it's picking up donuts for the pantry, if it's putting up signs, if it's raining or not, if it's doing the grunt work that no one else wants to do, if it's serving on a missional team and being uncomfortable if it's singing up here, if it's singing out there, if it's being downstairs with the kids and missing a service, we're doing this, church. But I don't want us to be comfortable. I want us to abound in it. I want us to serve with humility, not for the sake of redemption, but the sake of Jesus. Man, I've been so encouraged by how our church has been doing this the, the, the end of this month on Sunday, when we got a thank you for serving lunch after service on the last Sunday of the month for anybody on the welcome team. Also a great time to join. <laughs> See what I did there? Next month, we're doing that for uh, Redemption Kids, for anyone who's serving and new people who wants to come. Thank you for serving. We did that with our small group leaders uh, last month. Church, thank you for serving with humility. It's not about us. Jesus says this in Matthew, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Three ways to remain grounded in the gospel, deny yourself continuously. The second one, allow transformation willingly. Allow transformation willingly. Verses four through seven says this, for we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. I uh, enjoyed watching the uh, Extreme Makeover Home Edition show. You remember this? When they come to your house and they remodel everything in your house. It's a fun show. And uh, there's a level of gratification of uh, seeing what has happened, what was there, and the potential of what it could be, and the crew making it happen in real life. That the transformation was quick and evident, and they would yell, move that bus, and everyone would be so happy, and we would all cry, Right? 
So the gospel has the power to transform you through the ability of the Spirit of God radically. Unlike any transformation you'll ever experience. And it's not an event and you're done. It's the Spirit of God continually doing this. Changing us to be imitators of Jesus. And that's what happened here. The gospel came to them and it radically changed their core and allowed them to be imitators of Jesus. And the gospel doesn't just singularly change us, but consistently transforms us through the Spirit of God, God's work. But we need to allow God to do his work. During one of my uh, summer breaks in college, I went to India and I spent a, a month there with a church in a, in a very rural, rural and poverty-written village. Uh, it was a different state from where my parents were from, and uh, it was more north. It was a different language. as Canada, And it was almost a different culture. Right? Christianity wasn't welcomed there, and there was uh, laws about evangelizing and ministry. We had to hide our Bibles just in case somebody stopped us. And there was some language barrier. I don't speak that, even though I'm Indian. Everyone doesn't speak Indian in India. But it was such a humbling experience for me because all I can do was pray. And I really got close to this younger pastor. He knew a little bit of English. And so I was able to communicate somewhat with him. And his name was Pastor Jeremiah. And it was toward the end of the trip that I started noticing something. Uh, Pastor Jeremiah was, was being called something else in their native language. He was being called Rajesh. I'm like, has this guy been playing me this whole time? Like, is this not his real name? Do I not even know you? Who are you? And so I asked him, how come they're calling you by a different name? And he said one word. He said, old. He said, old. And then he opened up his Bible. And I did the same because that was an easy way to communicate. And he opened up to 2 Corinthians 5.17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. See, Rajesh was his name before Jesus. But his life transformed so drastically and radically after receiving the gospel. He was so convinced that he was a new creation in Christ. He wanted nothing to do with his old self, including his name. So he changed his name from Rajesh to Jeremiah, which is Jeremiah. The, the gospel transforms us to live differently. It gives us a new heart, a new identity, a new life. And sometimes it'll give you a new name. And how is this possible? Because the gospel isn't conceptual. It's not a theory. It actually has power. This news is actually life-giving. It's life-changing. It's life-transforming. And so let's look at verse 5. What does that say? Let's look at some of the key words here in this verse. Verse 5 says, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And so here's some key words. Here's how the gospel came, and here's our response. Or you see the word, word in verse 5. Or the gospel came as a message from God. 
right? The, the, the gospel is a message from God. This is what God is trying to tell his creation. It's the gospel. And our response is to hear it actively. You see the word power up there. The gospel came through the ability of God. That's how it can give people new name and new lives and new purpose. Because it has power. The gospel came through the ability of God. And our response is to believe in that power. Believe that God is able to do those things. You see the word in the Holy Spirit. The gospel came with newness of life in the Holy Spirit. It's already that we're not creating the newness. It's already given to us. And our response is to receive it. Receive the identity that God has given you. See the word conviction in there. The gospel came with conviction and leads us to repentance of sin. And our response is to repent. Turn away from our own sinful desires and turn to God. And so how are we responding to the gospel? Are you hearing his word? Are you believing in the power and the ability of God? Are you convicted and responding in repentance? This is all needed for us to allow God to transform us. Transformation led by the Spirit leads to imitation. It leads to growing to be like Jesus more and more and more. Even when there's affliction, when there's discouragement, even when there is difficulty that you face. The people of Thessalonica did not look like their old self because they lived transformationally, allowing God to change them. 2 Corinthians 3.18 talks about transformation. And we all with unveiled faces behold, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The evidence of transformation within us is seen in the way we increasingly reflect the likeness of Jesus. Are you willing Allowing, are you willingly and allowing God to work and transform you? Because that happens when we hear and believe and receive and repent. That's how the gospel came. Now, if we are following Jesus faithfully, he is continuously changing our condition and our outlook and our character. Is that happening? Is that happening in us? Are we growing? Are we abounding? This is accomplished by the renewing of our minds. An inward spiritual transformation that will manifest itself in outward actions. Three ways to remain grounded in the gospel. Here's our third one. Repent persistently. Repent persistently. Let's look at verses 8 through 10. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not to say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead 
Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Uh, idolatry was prominent in Thessalonica. There was worship all around in temples uh, and shrines to Greek gods, Egyptian gods, and other foreign gods. And not only did they have idol gods, but they also had Caesar who desired to be worshipped. Or they were literally turning away from idols to the living God. And though perceptually this looks different in our time, the root of idolatry remains the same. But Tim Keller says this, sin isn't only doing bad things, it is more fundamentally making good things into ultimate things. Sin is building your life and meaning on anything, even a very good thing, more than on God. Whatever we build our life on will drive us and enslave us. Sin is primarily idolatry. See, not only do we face the same temptation like our Thessalonian brothers and sisters, we're called to respond in the same way, repent and turn from these idolatry to God. For God's word says that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. Repentance is the core of remaining grounded in the gospel. It's a basic aspect of Christian life that I'm sure that the bigs and elementary downstairs are able to understand. But however, however, we can take it for granted. Right? This might not be a new thing to some of us. It might be a new thing. We might know this, but also this wasn't a new thing for the church in Thessalonica. But Paul still includes it for a reason. It reminds them how they turned away from idols to the living God. And this letter, as we'll see in the next upcoming weeks, is filled with indicatives that are reminders of what they've already been taught. There are at least 11, you already know, reminders, or uh, a couple of no need to write, yet he clearly writes. But he writes it for us because of the importance of these truths. Our battle with sin is beyond capability understanding. One theologian says, so great is our sin that has sent God's Son to the cross. Our sin is so deep and so pervasive, the Son of God had to die in our place. And the weight of our sin has to be taken seriously. So shall our repentance be taken seriously. It's an ongoing choice to turn away from the idols in our lives. Idols, maybe that Thessalonians uh, um, are talking about in this uh, verse right here, not uh, Greek idols or Egyptian idols, but idols of money, of status, of success, of comfort, of sexual immorality, turning away from that to the one and living God. It's not a singular event in a Christian life, but an ongoing event. Luther says, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ Will the entire life of believers to be one of repentance? Being grounded in the gospel starts with repentance. Being spiritually mature starts with repentance. Abounding in love and holiness and hope all deal with repentance. But repentance is a response of the atonement that has already satisfied the wrath of God. Meaning there was nothing that we did to compensate for the arson against God. Our repentance isn't what makes us right with God. It's Jesus that made us right with God. 
It's Jesus alone who restored a relationship with God and our Father. Jesus took the first step. And that should take off the burden of that we put on ourselves in, in terms of being a perfect Christian. The burden of a feeling like we have to have it all together all the time. Because the truth is that we will struggle with sin. And we need to fight sin for the rest of our lives. That's our journey. That's our walk. So what do we do with that? We repent persistently, especially in times of opposition, obstacles, and discouragement. Is there something that God is asking you to turn away from so that he can do his work? There's no amount of shame that outweighs the reward of repentance of going to Jesus. There's no lack of love that outweighs the love of Jesus for sinners. He understands. He's not bitter. He's not angry. He's asking you to come to him in love. He's not like us, thankfully. There's no lack of comfort that Jesus doesn't offer for those who come to him in repentance. Man, that should give us comfort. And let's close and look at verse 10. Verse 10 says this, And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And we wait with joyful anticipation for Jesus. But we abound in hope in his second coming to make things new and right. But and waiting isn't passive, right? That's what he told the church here. And that's what God is telling us, to wait well. And we wait by remaining grounded in what God has given us, being grounded in the news that we get to hear and believe and receive and respond we get, to be remain, we get to remain grounded in the gospel through denying ourselves, allowing God to transform us by listening to him in obedience. Because the gospel empowers us to live this out actively with transformative faith. And as a church, I want us to wait well. Not waiting with our hands and just waiting for things to go down and all messed up. That's already happening. But I want us to wait while actively living in our faith. I want others to see us and see us turning to God even in messiness. I see that already happening in our church. And what I'm asking us to do is to abound. Let's keep going. Don't give up. We wait knowing that Jesus was raised from the dead, defeating death once and for all, who delivers us. Delivers, not past tense, but delivers actively, delivering us right now at this moment because when we turn to him continually through repentance and faith and hope, man, he grounds us more to himself. And that's the good news.
that Jesus is holding on to us. He is holding on to us. We have hope because He is holding on to us. It's because of what He has done for us. And a part of waiting well is remembering well. In a great way to remember who Jesus is and what He has done is through communion. And so I want us to take a moment to get ready for communion. Let's, let's take a moment to close our eyes and pray and think about what God is trying to tell you. And at the same time, let's remember God and remember what Jesus has already done, how Jesus has already transformed so many lives in this room. Maybe even in this room, he talked to us in a specific way. Let's remember the work of the cross. Thanks for listening. For more audio content and information about redemption, please visit our website at redemptionbc.org.